Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, Jesus and His People, with a message entitled, In the World, But Sanctified. So turning your Bibles to John chapter 17, verses 10 to 19, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. The great English preacher of the 19th century, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, once said that the church of Jesus Christ must be like a great ship. The world, he said, is like the ocean. The ship must not remain in dry dock. It was created to be out in the ocean, out in the world. But woe to that ship while it's out in the ocean if the ocean is in the ship. Well, insightful and helpful words indeed. You know, both scenarios, as Spurgeon describes it, is a danger. One is the danger of simply forming into a kind of monastic culture away from, separated from the real church. You know, I have a memory of that attitude. You know, one day early in the morning, I was wandering through the church building where I was pastoring. You know, a young Chinese woman was wandering through the building as well, and I asked her if I could be of some help. Well, she said she was tired and weary of all the pressures of her work. But then because she had a Buddhist past, she asked me a question. Did you become a monk because you're escaping from the world, she asked, and I frankly didn't know where to start. I mean, I wasn't a monk, and this wasn't a convent. You know, I had a mortgage, and I had bills to pay just like anyone else. I knew of jobs, demands, and deadlines to keep, and problems to try to solve. You know, a family at home with all its joys and troubles, that wasn't much different than she. But just for a moment, I tried to understand her world. You know, for her, the church was where people went to run away from the world. It it wasn't about real life. It was a refuge from real life. And because at least in her mind that was so, you know, she was wondering if in some fashion we were there to help her run from the world as well. But Spurgeon also spoke about the other danger. And here I'm reminded of a different, very opposite experience than my experience with that young Chinese woman. My other experience was a conversation with a Caucasian man in his late middle years. You know, I had met him and we were talking about the church and he told me he wasn't interested. And I said, can you explain to me why? And he said, sure. And then he told me his story of having gone to church. He mentioned the denomination and I I recognized it as a, a version of a very liberal view of Christianity. And he said, when I went to church, all we ever talked about was politics and how to become an activist. You know, he said, and this is a quote as best as I remember it. He said, I need someone to save my soul. And my church was looking for a way to change the politics of the nation. And frankly, he said, I'm done. You church people have had your chance and I'm not coming back. See, unlike my first example, the church wasn't a refuge from the world. It was another form of the world. You know, we've been listening to as Jesus has been praying to the Father. And we've noticed that first he's prayed for the glory of God. And then we noticed that Jesus prayed that he would be glorified in the lives of his followers. And now we come to verses 11 to 19, and we're going to see that that Jesus is praying for his disciples whom he is going to leave in the world. What's to become of them? So let's start with rereading John 17, verse 10. And here we see Jesus praying, All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. All believers, he says, belong both to the Father and to the Son. I hope you can see how amazing is verse 10. You and I might pray and say to God something that sounds like, well, the first part of verse 10. 
See, we might pray, oh, Father, whatever I have belongs to you. I own nothing. You own everything. And I find delight in that. You might want to pray that way. You know, Father, my family, my spouse, my possessions, my job, my ministry, indeed, all of my life belongs to you. And to pray the first half of verse 10 is a necessary prayer for every child of God. See, it opens our eyes and helps us see our dependence on God. But who would pray the second half of verse 10? That is, Jesus prays, all that is yours is also mine. So let me ask you, what actually belongs to the Father? Well, for one, all creation belongs to him. Psalm 89 verse 11 says, The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours. Well, not only is creation God's, but so also is the management of the creation. Psalm 74, 16 to 17 says, Yours is the day, yours also is the night. You've established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. But God also says that all people and all their eternal destinies are also his. Ezekiel 18 verse 4 says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. And there's more. See, God's very clear that there are many things that are his that he will never share with anyone else. Isaiah 42 verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. See, only one who is himself God can play the latter part of verse 10. All that is yours is also mine. So here's the point. As the apostles are listening to Jesus praying, they would have known that all that they have belongs to God the Father, but because Jesus has chosen them, they also belong to the Father, but they also now hear that in the same way, they belong also to the Son, the shared possession of the Father and the Son. Now, before we're too quick to apply this to every single believer, remember there's something unique going on here. You know, Jesus is in this section of his prayer praying very specifically for the 11 remaining disciples. He knows that he will shortly leave this world and they will remain. What will happen to them? Notice in his prayer, he begins with the affirmation that these disciples don't belong to the world. They are the possession of the Father and the Son. And that's not to say that the apostles are superior or better than all other believers. That is, including us. But I think Jesus is saying that the 11 in that room do have a unique role. That's a role that only they can and will play. And as such, they have been chosen by the Father. They've been trained by the Son. And they're shared uniquely by the Father and the Son. I wonder if you know that in the new Jerusalem, city of God, there will be a great high wall with 12 gates built upon 12 foundations. And on each of those 12 foundation stones, according to Revelation 21, verse 14, are written the names of the 12 apostles. I know. You know, there are only 11 of them there, and you might wonder whether the 12th is Matthias, who was chosen by Lot after the resurrection, or whether the 12th is the apostle Paul. But I leave that discussion for another time. I don't want to be distracted from the truth that these men, whose number will be 12, will play a unique role, and their unique witness to the world are the foundation for the church of Jesus Christ. They're unique. They have a calling that no one else in all history has ever been given, and unless they perform their task, and don't fall away, by the way, there would have been no knowledge of the saving works of God in Jesus the Son. 
There'd have been no church. There would have been no people of God. And that's why Jesus prays for them. Do you see what's at stake in his prayer? If this prayer is not answered, you and I will die in our sins, we'll be under God's wrath without hope, and we'll be subject to eternal damnation. That's why it's important for us to listen very carefully to this prayer. Because the consequences of this prayer is going to be felt in every single life. Sometimes a very great deal depends on a very small set of circumstances. We call that hanging by a slender thread. It means there are no backup plans. There are no second chances. There are no alternatives. That's how it is with the plan of salvation. It was being entrusted to this room of what was now 11 men. So with these ordinary men in the room, men who had quirks and men who had sins and doubts and men who had huge weaknesses, Jesus knew what was at stake and he was praying for them. That's why he prayed. But he knows that they are selected by the Father, even if the men in that room are not so sure. He knows that they're the product of his training and he knows that they are the unique possession of the Father and the Son. So what does he pray? Well, as we read through this prayer, we find three essential things. Here's now the first of them. Jesus prays for their unity. We listen to John 17, verse 11. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Notice that by all intents, Jesus is no longer in the world. He's already on his way back to the Father, and before that night is out, he will already be taken from them. So how does he pray? Notice the first phrase, keep them in your name. Remember that according to verse 6, Jesus has revealed the name of the Father to them. So here he prays that they'll be committed to that message. He's delivered to them. They won't deviate from it. They won't get creative and add their own slant to it. They won't modify it or change it. He's praying that they do not stray from what he has revealed. He knows that the world will want them to make ever so slight adjustments to the message so they'll be more acceptable to the world. Instead, listen as Jesus implores the Father that not one of the men in that room will deviate even the slightest from what he has said and what he has taught them. Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. The year is coming to a close, and I couldn't be more grateful for the encouragement, prayers, and support we received from so many gracious ministry friends across the country. All of Back to the Bible Canada ministries, including Laugh Again and our young adult ministry in doubt, rely on the generosity of people like you. We teach the Bible with a purpose, that those who hear might receive and believe in our Lord Jesus. That's the intention of every program, every word. And your gifts make all that we do possible. Please consider supporting the ongoing ministries of Back to the Bible Canada as we strive to reach our December year-end goal of $376,000. Call 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca. You know, if you were an airline pilot, you'd know that even the slightest deviation from your course is going to have enormous consequences. Let me put it in terms that we all understand. Let's assume we're off by just one degree. 
So after just one foot, you'd miss the target by 0.2 of an inch. That's fairly insignificant, but after 100 yards, you'd be off by 5.2 feet. After a mile, 92 feet. If you went to a rocket to the moon, you'd be well off over 4,000 miles or 6,700 kilometers, which means you would miss the moon entirely and find yourself afloat in space. And the point I'm trying to make is that Jesus knew that one error by these men, given enough time, would make the gospel, by the time it got to us, so far afield that it would no longer be the gospel at all. Jesus is imploring the Father, keep them in your name. And on that basis, he wants them to be unified. He doesn't want John preaching his own thing over here and then Peter disagreeing and then Thomas, now off in India, going on to his own special thing there. He wants there not to be one shade of disagreement between them. Imagine what it would have been like if the apostles would have formed separate denominations, each stressing something else unique to their own ideas. There'd have been no way of knowing who was right. But Jesus prays it won't happen And the good news is, it didn't. You know, many have argued that before the apostles were finally dispersed to the world, that all of them were clear as to the one message. They were one. In today's world, you know, we often hear of people speaking of unity in diversity, they say. That is, we agree on the main things, but after that, we allow for a fair degree of difference. You know, I've noticed that some have even tried to teach that's the true view of the New Testament. And one example that has been given is the book of Galatians, because in chapter 1, Paul becomes quite open and explicit about a disagreement he once had with Peter. But the point here is not that disagreements were permitted among the apostles, but that disagreements were a matter of great consequence. Peter had not been living within the truth of the gospel, and he needed to repent, and the good news, he did. And it's at this point we see that the unity of the apostles is not a sloppy unity based on feelings. It's a deep, loving unity based on a common understanding of the truth. So again, that's what Jesus' first prayer is for his apostles, that they remain united in the truth. Here's the second prayer, that they should be protected from falling away or from apostasy, regardless how difficult it becomes. So let's read verses 12 to 16. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world." I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, there are several things that we should have noticed here. First, the disciples might have felt, but who knows, Judas has fallen away from the truth. I mean, what guarantee do we have that we won't? But two things should be noticed. Jesus has been guarding his disciples from Satan, and because of his shield of protection, not one of them has been lost. Well, what about Judas? And the answer, from eternity past, God had determined that he would be the son of destruction. Just to be clear, there's a mystery in this. I hope you see it. Judas was entirely responsible for his own behavior. He'd been stealing out of the offering box. He, He never abandoned his own selfish desires for Christ. I mean, those were his choices. But here's the mystery. 
From a divine decree issued in eternity past, the damnation of Judas had already been declared. And Jesus finds fulfillment of that, Psalm 41, verse 9. The apostasy of Judas should not be thought of as Jesus having lost one of his own because he never does. You see, the Bible promises the perseverance of the elect. John 6:37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes I will never cast out. This now is a reference to not just the disciples, but to everyone. Or consider John 10, 27 to 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Jesus loses none the Father gives him. Judas was not one of those given by the Father, but rather he is the one from the outset who is among the walking damned. Jesus always knew that, even though the disciples were unaware of it. Only now does he tell them. So why would that be encouraging? Well, it is because Jesus is praying that the disciples would be protected. Well, they might have wondered, well, how can they set their minds at ease? Yeah, it's true that, you know, they would have struggled just like we do between human freedom and the divine decree. But isn't it wonderful to know that in spite of the foolish decisions we all make, that Jesus never loses one of his own, never, not ever. Look again at verse 14. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So Jesus has been warning his disciples that the world will hate them. Indeed, there will be many who will think they're doing God a favor when they kill them. In the face of that kind of hatred, Jesus prays that none of them would be lost. Well, history bears it out. Every one of those 11 men, with the exception of John, died a martyr's death, and yet not one of them denied him. Now again, verse 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but yet you keep them from the evil one. Some of you might know this about the early martyrs, that there was a prayer that was often uttered by Christians just before they were thrown to the wild beasts in the Roman arenas. You know, many of them were in intensive prayer before their martyrdom. And you might say, well, of course they were. Yeah, they were. But they were not praying for what you might expect. They were not praying that they be protected from the world, but they were praying that they should be protected from Satan and the temptation that in some fashion they might in their final hours deny the name. Give us courage, they prayed, to die in Christ. See, that's got to be our prayer as well. Don't pray, O Lord, keep me in health and in wealth and in living at ease. Rather pray, O Lord, in all things, whether I'm well spoken of or slandered, that I must not deny your name. Indeed, just as in the first prayer for unity among the apostles, even so, now in protection from the arrows of the wicked, God answered Jesus' prayer. Not one of them denied his name. And then thirdly, Jesus prays for their holiness. Let's read verses 17 and 19. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Well, the word sanctify means to be made holy. And Jesus was praying that increasingly the disciples would separate themselves from participating in and from being influenced by evil. All of us know of Christian leaders who have been carrying out 
you know, either a secret life of evil, you know, some sexual, some have abused power, others are guilty of lies, some are greedy for money, the list goes on and on. All of us know that such behavior makes it very hard for many to even consider the gospel. You know, it causes some to slander the cross and others to joke that that we're selling what we can't deliver. That is a life-changing message. And so Jesus wanted these men, every one of them, to be growing in holiness. And how was it to occur? Well, it was to happen in the truth. That is, the Word of God and repeated consistent exposure to it brings conformity to the truth. It's a lesson for all of us. I see people all the time struggling with sin, and I've asked them, are you consistent in the Bible, in prayer, in church, in yielding to the Holy Spirit? And often they'll answer, well, no, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to win this battle by trying harder, not by relying on God. Isn't it wonderful to know that everything Jesus prayed for for his disciples was answered by the Father? Not a single prayer of Jesus was answered with the word no. Here's why I'm grateful. Without this prayer being answered, you and I would never have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's another application as well. You know, our lives, even though none of us today forms the foundation of the gospel so that our falling away would have been as significant as if one of those 11 had fallen away, but, but as it is with them, when we hear Jesus praying for us, please notice, He's not praying that you be taken out of the world. It's not the issue. Rather, that the world be kept out of you, that you might be holy in his truth. Thanks so much, John. Now, just so I have things straight, if Jesus was praying for the holiness of his disciples and by extension, our holiness, should we just assume that holiness? Or is there something for us to do? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we don't just simply sit back and wait for it to happen. Uh, rather, you know, I mean, because he has, you know, begun this good work in us and he has made it possible for us to grow in holiness. Therefore, we strain with all the energy that we have. I mean, it takes a great deal of, um, you know, just commitment to the Word of God and uh, of all of our effort to continue to carry on in the life of holiness. We've got to fight for holiness in our life. We've got to fight against sin. We've got to do all of that stuff. But, but here's the thing. We know uh, with absolute assurance that we're going to win that fight because Jesus is praying for us. So we're hopeful in the middle of our struggles and we're glorifying God. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus and His People, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Since 1957, Back to the Bible Canada has provided excellent and trustworthy Bible teaching for Canadians. These efforts have helped transform the lives of thousands of Canadians from coast to coast to coast. You know, whatever stage of life you're in, you've probably considered the impact you want to leave on your family, on your community, or in the world. Providing sustainable support to the Back to the Bible Canada ministry is one key way you can have an impact on the lives of thousands. We have a goal of adding 331 new monthly givers to our new monthly partner program, the 1119 Fellowship. Won't you help us reach that goal? 
and ensure the message of God's Word continues to be available and its message continues to transform lives. To learn more about the program, the benefits of joining, and to become a member, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship.